first time founders will always focus more on product. Second time founders will always focus more on distribution. I like to back founders or work with founders who are thinking about distribution first. And that goes back to my, in my experience as a founder as well. Like you can build the best product in the world, but if you don't crack a distribution, you won't be able to capture a market share. Hello and welcome. I'm your host Pratish Sanyal and you're listening to The 1% Project. Conversations that will help you understand how some of the smartest minds build, scale and operate new ideas and ventures. If you enjoy these conversations, do share and subscribe. My next guest on The 1% Project is Shrishti Sahu. She is the managing partner at SSV. SSV is a stage agnostic family office investing in early stage businesses. Through SSV, she has invested in 30 startups such as Plum, Jar, Ten Club, and Kutum. Before getting into investing, she built two startups, worked for a PE fund, and headed Facebook's South Asia startup program. In this conversation, she talks about how waking up at 5 a.m. has enabled her, the difference between a generalist versus a specialist, how writing has empowered her, leading businesses and people in villages and towns versus cosmopolitan cities, why she chose to become an angel investor, her framework of investing in startups and building a portfolio, how can early stage founders differentiate themselves and what got her into crypto investing. If you have any feedback about this conversation, topic or speaker recommendations, you can drop me a line at pritish at the rate 1%.live. You can also sign up for the 1% Project's newsletter at 1%.live to get the show notes and key insights from this conversation and every other conversation. Welcome, Srishti, to the 1% Project. Thank you, Pritish, for having me. You are a member of the 5AM Club. How has that enabled you? A very interesting question. Actually, my 5AM club journey began back in school. have been an athlete all my life. have always been a very sporty person. Waking up early back in school, being very disciplined around my routine became a part of my routine overall. I'm very glad that that has transitioned well into my current life and has served me well, honestly. My morning, very intuitively, I am able to do a lot of things that people struggle with. Things like working out, meditating and reading. Typically, that's the start of my day. I call it my priming hours, which is basically as an athlete, you essentially need to warm up before you get on the court. And that's essentially what I'm doing at the start of my day, priming before I get on the court to be able to go and play. So that's how I look at it. I think just having that kind of a discipline has led me to doing a lot of things that have compounded really well. Overall, it served me well that I'm able to read a lot, learn a lot, and also just center before the day starts. So really recommend anyone who's thinking about getting out of bed an hour earlier to really do it, and you'll see the benefits from it. You've been an athlete in school. You have learned Kathak professionally for six years. You have learned classical singing, and you have also done some work with artists. How would you actually term yourself? Are you a generalist or are you a specialist? 
I like to think of myself as a T-shaped person rather than categorizing myself as a generalist or a specialist. I generally am a person who has way too many interests and very diverse. Just restricting myself to a certain personality or certain terms that you can put up in your Twitter bio honestly has been very hard for me. I don't see myself living a one-dimensional life ever. How I like to think about at least my skill sets is that I have a T-shaped personality where I will dabble into multiple things, where I will go wherever my curiosity leads me. I will read uh, about diverse subjects, but go deeper into certain things that really give me energy or excite me. I generally am a believer in being able to take learnings from one sphere of your life and applying them elsewhere. That's the approach that I lead with. Let me try and break that down a bit. One school of thought where people say you should be specialist so that you can go deep down. And then you're saying that you have multiple interests and then you dabble in them and you're able to actually go from one interest to the other and probably use the learnings from one on the other. Doesn't that create distraction? Some people may say it's distracting that you're not doing one thing in a deeper way and you're doing multiple things. The good thing is that for people who like learning, there will come a point where you saturate yourself in one sphere and then you ultimately have to get yourself exposed to other spheres. But at least from the perspective of being able to take the learnings across different fields, I don't uh, see it as distractions. I rather see it as learning experiences which can lead me to different outcomes. How I think about it is if you do the same things that everyone is doing, you will have a very linear path to things. And I'm a believer in trying to find at least non-linear or exponential opportunities. And that honestly cannot translate from just doing the same part that everyone else is taking. What has served me well in life, I would say, is that I've been able to learn about different fields and go very deep into certain things. But there comes a point where you might pick up something and realize that you're not really keen to learn about it. And that is also the case where you tend to close down projects that you might have started to the external world, this can look as failures. But to me, these are just stepping stones, so to speak. I'm just learning. I'm taking everything as learnings. And my process is to be able to learn about different things. And then ultimately, I know that learning will serve me somewhere. It doesn't need to necessarily translate and serve me at that moment. But I know somewhere down the line, it might add to my life. And that, that's how I approach thinking about it rather than saying that you follow a very linear path, just stick to the things that, you know, you're supposed to do. That way, I'm a real non-conformist, so to speak. I don't like to do the traditional thing. And you have been writing a newsletter. How has that experience been? Actually, I've been writing content, British for as long as I can remember. My first pieces of content started going out on the web when I was still in university. Even at that point, I was building startups while I was in my dorm room, the entrepreneurs club on campus. And that's where I was going through so many different life experiences where I was participating in pitch competitions or also building your business plan competitions. I, I wanted to capture all those learnings somewhere. And uh, that's where my stint with writing actually started, where I was like, want to capture these learnings, uh, which this phase is bringing into my life. 
and that's how my first WordPress blogs came to be and that's how I literally started. Honestly, putting content out there has been one of the most founding benefits that I've seen in my life personally. Both my jobs, which I did one at a VC firm and then at Facebook came to me because people discovered me because of my content. A lot of opportunities and even now till date, a lot of my deal flow actually comes from the content I'm putting out as well. So I actually see content as a level that I found personally for myself that works really well. It helps me put my thoughts out there, helps me think with more clarity as well. But ultimately, it's opening up more opportunities for me. So when I started writing the newsletter, I was very keen on writing about what my learnings were from investing and being very deep into the startup ecosystem. Now the newsletter has a couple of thousand subscribers and still I see a lot of deal flow coming for me personally from there as well as investors reaching out. I've had opportunities to join funds as a partner as well come to me just because of the content I'm putting out. Just putting out content, whatever format works for you, I think just so people well in the long run if you can if you want to be consistent with it and if you have a natural flair for it just leverage it and you know use it for your benefit let's dive into your founder journey how was being a founder of a startup which had half a million customers processing around 30 million us in transactions and just with six employees how was that experience the founder experience for me was uh, actually the most fulfilling and rewarding time uh, of my career so far. And that's why I've always been on the founder side rather than being on the other side of the desk. But I was building my first startup of all places in Lucknow. That's where I originally come from. It was exceptionally hard to build a startup in Lucknow back in 2012, 2013. And for obvious reasons, I, I think A, in any case, it was very early for the Indian startup ecosystem. B, I was doing it for college. So for people, for to 10 people, what I'm doing out of college, they would actually just think that I'm unemployed or I didn't want to work. And that's why I was just calling myself an entrepreneur. Third, having access to talent and also a network of founders around you was really hard to get. But ultimately, you know, what worked for us was being very customer obsessed. That is ultimately what ended up working for us. So going a little deeper into my founder journey, when I moved back from the UK to Lucknow, the first thing I wanted to do was I had some D2C experience of building a company. So when I moved back, the first thing I thought about was how can we empower artisans that live around Lucknow? At that point, e-commerce wave was just starting out. Platforms like Flipkart, Snapdeal had been established. So the marketplaces were wide open. And to me, being able to create large-scale impact, which has potential benefits for the society, was very poor to my being. So the idea literally was very simple that we will help artisans sell online through an e-commerce platform. And also we did multiple exhibitions around that, scale that to a certain extent, but realized that the D2C wave wasn't really there. People weren't comfortable with transacting online at that point. And the business that we were in of making unique artisan products uh, was not really scalable because each artisanal product is very unique. But what happened at that time also was that the same artisans that we would work with were also borrowing from microfinance institutions in the region. So I would often see agents from these microfinance institutions come to do collections on ground which could be taking deposits as little as, say, 100 to 200 rupees on a daily basis, depending on what the artisan had borrowed. And that, that's how I would see that all of this, all of these transactions are happening on pen and paper. 
And the engineer in me just thought about, would, wouldn't it be fantastic to have a product around this? Given that these were actually, even though they were microtransactions, these transactions were happening at scale, not just in the villages that we were operating in, but communities across the Lucknow and different villages. So that, that's how we ultimately started. First, because of interactions with the agents and having seen the artisans very closely in terms of how the process worked, we literally co-built the product with those sets in terms of like consumer as well as people who were actually going to use the product. And because we were working very closely with the agents, we knew how they operated. Some of the unique insights that we were able to see that, you know, an agent really is not literate in any way. So they might not even know what is written on the paper or how much they need to take. Uh, a lot of them just memorized all these things because they would do it on a daily basis. Some of the agents had been doing this for 20, 30 years. So they had memorized the entire route where they would have to go and take the deposits and do the collection. So those were some of the insights that we incorporated into the product. And then we approached the NBFCs that these agents were a part of to be able to say that, why don't you start using this product? It can actually seed out a lot of inefficiencies in your operating expenses. We recognized that this was a big need because an NBFC was losing out at least 10% of their operating margins because of the inefficiencies in the systems. Just think about it, like all these microtransactions happening with pen and paper, mostly cash at that point. An agent could easily say that I got robbed or something else happened. You don't know where the cash went for the day. And not only that, there were trouble. Agents would have to go stand at the NBFCs for four hours in a day to be able to take the receipt of where they had to go do the collections and then come back. What really worked for us was being very close to the agents, building a product for their exact needs. And the first customer, when we were onboarding them, gave us a challenge that, you know, if you are able to get all my agents to adopt this product, we will start using you. They told us that I do this in, let's say, six months. We ended up making all the agents use our app within four months. So 100% of the agents started using it for one NBFC, and that's how we ended up getting our first customer. From there, it just went through the roof because most of these NBFCs, even though they might be in the remotest parts of India are handling millions of dollars of transactions. So we didn't need too many customers per se because we hit transaction volumes, which were quite large just with four customers that we had at that point. So it was a very interesting journey, very lean team, very young team, maybe not the best position to win in the fintech market at that point, but we tried our best and we tried to deliver. Let's talk about leadership. And there are two parts to it. One is what did you find about your own leadership? What, what did you explore? What kind of a leader are you? And the second is, do you feel that leadership within the segments that you're working in, basically towns and villages in India, is different or a different kind versus leaders who work in cosmopolitan first-year, second-year cities? Great question. I think, you know, my personal way of leadership so far, at least, has been that I try to empower my team members. And uh, for me, empowerment is the theme that I like to operate with, where I'm okay to give people as much freedom to go out and explore uh, as long as they are accountable and are driving the metrics that we set as goals. For me, again, going back to an uh, athlete's an, uh, analogy, driving team performance is more important 
than driving individual goals and outcomes. As long as we're working for the greater good of the team, we have a shared mission that we're working towards. That, that's the kind of team that I want to attract and like work with. And there are many people who won't fit this bill. A lot of people want to work and operate very differently. I've personally been in situations where I've had micromanagers. But for people who have a great sense of agency, and like freedom, they don't want to uh, be subjected to a short leash. They want to be given freedom, want to be given the opportunity to go out and explore and do their best. Uh, a lot of the times, best comes by just feeling empowered and being able to show up every day on a shared mission. I like to lead with the sense of empowerment and creating a shared mission for the team. And slowly, beautifully, things start adding up if you get these things right. To answer your second question, because I've seen leaders both in, say, cities like Lucknow versus elsewhere and even in the valley. So I've seen two extremes and that's what has impacted a lot of how I think about leadership as well. Coming from Lucknow where it's very traditional even now, uh, full-fledged Lala culture, it's just all about authority, showing up in office, uh, sitting in office from say nine to five and not having too many aspirations also as an employee. I've seen those that side of thing. And I've seen the valley culture as well, where say a company like Facebook will just try to ensure that you're given the best environment uh, that you can be given to do your best work. And having seen both the uh, spectrums, it's very interesting because you have a very different set of learnings and you can see what the diverse perspectives are and you choose the best uh, of both worlds. So at least that's what I've tried. Now from founder, you're an angel investor and you've gone through the whole value chain of uh, being a founder, looking at investment from angel to late stage. So why angel? Angel investing actually happened for me very organically. I think a, I always felt like an outsider in the tech ecosystem coming from Lucknow. I remember having a conversation with some founders, why don't you move to Delhi and earn Bangalore? Because building a startup from Lucknow where you don't have access to talent and networks is a very different bowling game uh, to play all together. For me, I wanted to empower the underrepresented and the outsiders in the ecosystem because that's personally my story as well. To go from seemingly being an outsider to now being an insider, at least that's the outside perception that, you know, it's uh, it's taken me a while to get here. So to be able to open doors for other people to follow, I, I think that's the approach uh, that got me started. But again, angel investing, once you've been a founder, I think you get really uh, real empathy for anyone who's going on the founder journey. We know how hard it is. We've all had sleepless nights. We've all had people tell us that cannot work. And we still are foolish enough to wake up every day and try our best and try to deliver. Just being able to support those founders who are just trying their level best. I think that's where it stemmed from. And fortunately, having been a founder, I was a part of some different founder fellowships as a result you started meeting other founders and then I was like why shouldn't I invest in some of these founders who I know just brilliant minds of our time and are going to do good things so that's how it started very organically but yeah I think it's scaled well now. You started your angel portfolio from scratch so what are your views on building an angel portfolio? How should one build an angel portfolio if they, they are starting from zero investments? Angel investing should be 
looked at at least from a four to five year period from a portfolio construction perspective. People and angels that I've met in the ecosystem sometimes have often had this experience and this was my experience also. And hence I'm able to share this learning that the first few bets that you end up making, sometimes you try, you over index on those bets. And you think that these one or two founders really know everything and they are the ones who are going to crack it. But unfortunately, that's not how it works. We are all living under a power law. The universality of power law it becomes even more real in the angel and venture world. To be able to get to the 1% outcomes, you will have to have access to 100% of the deals to be able to see where the best quality of deals are coming from and do I have access to those deals or not. And it takes a while to even realize that do you have the access to best quality deals or not? Because typically we are all living in our bubbles and we sometimes think that whatever opportunity is coming to me is potentially the best opportunity in the ecosystem. But that's almost never the case. And to be able to get to the best quality deal flow, you typically need to build your portfolio. You need to build your brand even to be able to attract the best quality of founders. And that only happens over a four to five year period. It's not something that you will get instantly unless you already are a founder uh, and you have those connects or very organically over a period of time for most people. So what I tell people is that you build your portfolio over four to five years, invest in at least 15 to 20 companies to be able to really find one or two outliers that make your entire portfolio and give you the returns that you would want to get because most people don't understand that they won't be able to access those same returns say with a three to five startup portfolio they need to at least diversify across say 15 20 companies to be able to find these outliers that's the biggest secret that has been powering the venture capital world and i think and now it's become more accessible to people with platforms like say angelist let's venture Angel investing has truly become democratized. To be able to know where you're getting your best quality of deals from, are those founders the best team that can potentially win in this market? Those are some of the softer things to understand. But yeah, from a portfolio construction perspective, look at diversification, look at doing it over a four to five year period rather than taking large bets as soon as you start. What is your decision framework for startup investments? My framework, honestly, even though I don't have a fund yet, I tend to think like a fund. And most people, when they're investing their personal capital, tend to be very risk averse. Angel investing is a game. If you're playing it, you're not playing to protect the downside, but you're trying to make the upside as large as possibly you can. So how I approach angel investing in my framework has come from the fact that I'm essentially looking for founders uh, who are building for large markets, we're solving for large markets. Obviously, if it's unfragmented, the bigger the opportunity. But founding team market fit is the most crucial piece of this puzzle. Typically, I invest at pre-seed seed stages, so you do not have too many signals to rely on. You typically just have an MVP, maybe some traction, some customer love, but ultimately you are betting on the team's potential and capability that this is the best team to win. So I tend to back founding teams that have a combination of both that they can build as well as sell. So one co-founder who has some sales, marketing, go-to-market experience and the other uh, a little technical who has product in building uh, scaling experience. When you have a combination of these two, I think founding teams are pretty much unstoppable if they play their cards right and they're operating in a large enough market. Other than that, obviously, having a superior product will always win. But first thing, founders will always focus more on 
product. Second time founders will always focus more on distribution. I like to back founders or work with founders who are thinking about distribution first. And that goes back to my, in my experience as a founder as well. Like you can build the best product in the world, but if you don't track a distribution, you won't be able to capture market share. You do pre-seed and seed. How do early stage founders really differentiate themselves? How do you figure out or evaluate early stage founders? So there are two things that I look for, British. One, obviously the past experiences of the founders really, really matter. What they were doing before, it doesn't mean that you come from the industry or have 10, 20 years from in the industry, but it means that does this founder have very deep domain insights? And do they understand the problem really well? Are they able to articulate it really well? Have they been able to get to the cause of the problem rather than coming up with a superfluous uh, solution as such? And the second thing is, uh, are they customer obsessed or not? And that is a metric for me that can make or break an investment that if you have very unique insights, if you are so obsessed with your customers that you try to, you dream about them, you wake up thinking about them, you're trying to make your product as accessible to them as as you can. If you have those kind of insights, and they, these can be very early signals as well. Maybe they did it for another project that they could have working that they could have been working on. Maybe it's a pivot that they finally come to a model that starts working. Maybe they previously were at a startup which catered to the same audience, so they're bringing this deep customer insights from them, but just building a different product. So being able to understand customers really well, knowing your entire life cycle of the customer. What does my customer do when they come to my product? Why do they like to come to my product? What's keeping them coming back? Why are they engaging with my product? Those are some of the softer signals that you tend to over-index on. Because if a customer is being and being catered to, then the startup has a chance of success. Because ultimately, we're in the game of making something that people want. And if you're able to cater to real customer demand, that's game half one. You started investing in Bitcoin in 2012. What got you into the crypto space? My advent into crypto actually started because of my morning routine, actually. During my morning runs, I tend to listen to podcasts quite a bit. Back in 2013, I, I actually got into crypto in 2013. But back in 2013, one of my favorite podcasts was the Tim Ferriss show. I think it was Naval who was on that podcast at that point who came and spoke about Bitcoin, crypto, and things like that. And that was the first time where it opened up my world, where I was like, okay, there's something very exciting happening, which I have no clue about. So that was the first time where I started going down the rabbit hole. I remember Bitcoin being at 14,000 rupees, not dollars, but rupees at, at that stage. And I, at that point, it, it was like, I obviously didn't understand it fully. But because it was so exciting uh, to be a part of, I was like, at least let me put some capital towards it. I read the white paper, I did my research, I went down the rabbit hole and ended up buying some crypto. But that was my first buy, I think at $180 roughly, which translates to the morning routine slash podcast gave me my start into this world. How are you looking at the crypto space and the Bitcoin and ETH space going forward? I have not been investing too much into crypto now. I still hold uh, certain currencies that I invested in between the 2013-16 period. There's some more that I've bought uh, recently, but not anything substantial. And that has come from my overall understanding in terms of, you know, spaces shaping up. I think A, the technology is itself very valuable. 
but the currency layer of it if it's going to be as valuable or not is still open to debate so while a layer will become the operating system that we all use and blockchain will get to a point where as lay people we won't even know that we're using some elements of blockchain and those consumer products have started being built in india as we speak the founders are already trying to solve it i have lost my belief in the fact that these currencies will hold significant value going forward and i know this is like a very skeptical statement to me but i just feel that as of where we are today it is a speculative asset and from going into a productive asset mode is still at least a couple of years away and i'm not a firm believer that this currency can have significant uptake while obviously communities are very powerful and today in a digital world if you make enough people believe in it you can form things but i think that when a bear market comes when a downturn all correlation tends to go to one and this we i've seen it like my public markets history because i've read a lot about the space a hundred years kind of history if you see what happened in say 1997 in 2008 all of that something tanks or like when the stock market tanks literally every asset is affected while uh, there's so much leverage in the crypto market that's what makes me a little even more skeptical in today's day and age that most of the people who are first time investors have just gotten into crypto without any understanding of what this asset class is it does it have value or not and, and that's a scary place to be uh, at least where i am at now i'm not buying anything new i still retain some of the investments that i've made earlier which i will uh, continue holding on to you quoted in one of your blogs which goes something like you cannot swim for a new horizon until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore double click on that it's a very interesting concept most people think of life's experiences that before they take a leap they need to have their next option figured out and to me i've never thought of it that way honestly when i was leaving facebook everybody told me including my parents they were like this is the worst mistake you're making of your life just stay there get to a leadership position move to the us you can have a very comfortable life why would you want to move away from that but my thinking has always been that to go two steps forward you have to go back just how an arrow gets pulled before it finally gets launched so for me i'm okay to have that space of say a break of one or two months where i don't necessarily know what my next phase is but i'm okay to go through that phase of discovery go through that idea maze of what i want to do and have an open mind towards it i don't want to restrict myself with opportunities that i won't leave something that you know unless i have something else in hand which is how most people think of opportunities people don't tend to uh, leave their jobs that they might not be feeling fulfilled from and that tends to hold people back a lot my at least my guiding principle in life is be courage they just jump and figure it out on the way rather than waiting for the time to come because the time will never come you just have to make the best of every opportunity that keeps coming your way you can build a meaningful career both ways and both approaches can work but for me with a higher risk profile this tends to serve me better brilliant shristi that is a great place to close this conversation thanks for being on the show it was a great pleasure to talk to you pratish really enjoyed our conversation thank you for having me you can find the show notes for this episode and every other episode on 1%.live if you enjoyed this conversation share it on social media and leave a review see you next time